Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I am David DeRoche in for Lucy Napothangel. Every day we wake up and make decisions, what to wear, what to eat. In theory, we use bits of information to help us make good choices. But with big decisions, we ostensibly need even more information to make a smart choice, like who to vote for. So what happens when information is overwhelming, or when there's conflicting information, or when people can't even agree on which information is true and which is false? Today we're exploring some of these big questions. Coming up, we'll talk from a professor and expert in semantics who will talk about this new world we live in and the role that words and language play in governance. Later, we'll speak to a mathematician who says there's a crisis in critical thinking. And finally, we'll talk to a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist about his efforts to teach everyone to think like a journalist. But first, we'd like to know what you think. Are people living in different realities because of the information we choose to believe? And if so, what does that mean for democracy? You can join the conversation at 860-275-7266, email wherewelive at wnpr.org, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us now from the studios of WFDU at Fairleigh Dickinson University in New Jersey is Lance Strait. He's a professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University and author of several books, including Amazing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman's Brave New World Revisited. He's also president of the New York Society for General Semantics. Lance Strait, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you very much. Great to be here. As someone who has uh, whose expertise is in words and their definitions, I should probably be fairly precise with my language and avoid <laughs> any impromptu fact checks by our guest here. So, uh, but speaking of fact checks, that's an entire industry now. Uh, well, it, it's actually been an industry for at least a decade. Um, but it seems like these days we have facts, alternative facts, fake facts, and, and all these things in between. So uh, first, let's lay out some context, or I, I guess we could say let's lay out some facts, some traditional facts. Um, 2016 was a certainly a transformative year in politics and international relations. We saw Great Britain break away from or vote to break away from the European Union. And after an unconventional campaign, we saw a rally. We saw a reality TV star and billionaire businessman win the presidency here in the U.S. Of course, there's the ongoing propaganda battle between the U.S. and Russia. And in this context, Oxford Dictionaries named the word of the year in 2016 post-truth, which they define as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. So, you know, certainly propaganda and manipulations have been around for a while, but post-truth sort of connotes something a bit different and perhaps more sinister. I don't know, what do you think of that term? And are we living in an era of post-truth? Well, the, I, I've got some qualms about that term. Uh, it kind of reminds me, you know, maybe a step up from Stephen Colbert's truthiness <laughs> uh, that he used to characterize George W. Bush. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, really it comes down to we don't really have truth or believe in truth uh, in quite the same way that people have historically and not today in our uh, contemporary world. Uh, people used to have general agreement about what the truth is, but 
we've come to understand that that truth that depends on the situation. So what's true, say, uh, in mathematics or in logic is different from what's true for scientists or what's true in a house of worship or what's true in a courtroom. Uh, so post-truth, I think, is, is less apt than really post-rational. We're, we're just not uh, committed to that experiment in rationality that uh, we called, you know, that goes back to the Enlightenment, and, and it's kind of what American, the American Republic and the American experiment was based on. So where do you think we took this turn toward uh, more, less rational thinking? Where do you think that happened? I, oh, I think it definitely has to do with the electronic media, and, uh, especially television, and then further amplified by the internet. Uh, when we, uh, before we had these forms of communication, we pretty much were relied on words, and there were words in print, and then we talked about the words in print, uh, and our minds were shaped by our ability to read and write, and so we took statements. Really what we're talking about are statements, because when you s we're, we were talking about facts, uh, facts actually don't exist in the world. Uh, I, of course, which is not to say that, that there aren't things in the world or events in the world you know, that go on, but facts are statements about them. And, and so when we can make a clear statement and then judge it to be true or false, uh, then we can call that kind of statement a fact. So if I say it's raining outside right now, uh, and, and of course we specify that we're talking about where you are or where I am because we're not in the same place, but you know, when, when we make that specific description, uh, we can then use our senses and determine whether that's uh, accurate or not. So that there's a sense of truth that's easy to understand and that's based on making clear, well-defined statements. So that's interesting because I think most people will look at uh, or hear the word fact and they'll assume that that's something that has been confirmed to be true. But what you're saying is that an actual fact is something that could, could be disproven or could be false. Absolutely. And the, and the key is that it's open to being uh, proven false. Uh, those of us of a certain age rem may remember when Ronald Reagan was president and he became notorious for quoting false facts. And there were statements that people were able to go to and determine and, and you know, point out that, no, this is not true, or at least the evidence does not support the statement. I mean, often uh, they came uh, from motion pictures rather than from uh, real life. Uh, so, uh, and, and science, you know, when we look at science, which really uh, still ha is our best source of, of getting a sense of what's out there, what's in the world, uh, science depends on this idea of facts being open to falsification. I know the, the, a statement like it's raining outside right now is something that we can say is true or false, but a more general statement like whenever dark clouds gather, it rains, that uh, can only be falsified, you know, because when you find just one instance where it isn't true, then the, then the generalization is is falsified. So science I, and and science conducted properly, I always understand 
that never have absolute truth, uh, but the key is that we're always open to testing and always open to falsification. And, that, and that's a far cry from where you hear like Sean Spicer and, and, uh, and folks like that talk about the, the fact that the president believes this to be true. And so despite all evidence to the contrary, all falsifications, the president still believes this to be true, that, that his truth is based on belief, not evidence. You know, speaking of motion pictures, uh, I'd like to play a clip um, real quick uh, from the Indiana Jones, um, the third one in the Indi- Indiana Jones trilogy, um, where he is a um, he's an archaeologist and he's in class, and this is what he has to say about the subject. Archaeology is the search for fact, not truth. If it's truth you're interested in, Dr. Tyree's philosophy class is right down the hall. <laughs> So I mean, I know this is you know sort of meant to be a cute little line in the movie, but it does raise sort of an interesting question. And I wonder is, and you've kind of touched on this already, but I wonder if you can flesh this out a bit. Um, is is truth? Is this really just a matter left to philosophy, or is it? Does that mean there's no such thing as an absolute truth? Is truth subjective all the time? It's not subjective, but it depends on 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 the kind of. Uh, situation and the kind of discourse, if you like, the kind of language that we're using. So in mathematics, you can certainly say one plus one equals two, uh, but in the real world, that's not the case. That is, sometimes you have uh, an object and you add another object and you get two objects, but say if you have a cloud and you add another cloud to it, you don't have two clouds or you don't have a cloud that's twice as big, you know, something else is is going on. So uh, it's very easy to talk about truth in a deductive system. Uh, That is one where we begin with certain assumptions, and we can say, based on these assumptions, this is true or this is not true. So based on the Bible, if we assume the, you know, if we start with the Bible, then based on the Bible, um, the world was created in six days and God created the world. And it's true according to the Bible. Uh, But once we go beyond uh, our first principles and say, well, let's look for evidence, that's where things start to get messy. I, I think a great example, I mean, something all Americans should be familiar with are the lines, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And in a way, that, that's a line of great chutzpah because it's not self-evident um, and not everyone believed in it. In fact, it, it was very much a statement against the British monarchy who did not believe that all all individuals are are created equal. Uh, But uh, where they said truths, I think we could better understand that they're talking about principles, that we begin with these principles. They're not questioned. uh, They're not subject to any testing or proof. We start with these principles, and based on these principles, we then can arrive at the conclusion that people are entitled to govern themselves. You know, as much as I love to dive into the constitutional arguments and the, and the religion <laughs> stuff, uh, that probably is, a, is another top sh- talk show topic. But um, Politics and religion, eh? <laughs> oh, right, right. Um, but I, I want to come back to what you mentioned before with, uh, with Sean Spicer and, um, you know, sort of representing beliefs of Donald Trump as being uh, true. Um, and also, you know, of course, we have the alternative facts thing. Um, but let's just say for argument's sake that uh, when Kellyanne Conway had uh, made that statement, that she actually had some kind of data or study to back those facts up. 
Um, because we do see this a lot. And in, in fact, actually, in Connecticut, the legislature is considering a bill on legalizing marijuana, and advocates from each side have presented conflicting studies to the lawmakers. One says legalized pot in Colorado has led to more car accidents, but another says that legalized pot has had no effect on car accidents. So how are people supposed to know when they're getting these conflicting studies, they're getting conflicting information that actually are presenting facts that tell two completely different stories? How are people supposed to know where what's true? Well, uh, and, and the thing is they can both be true uh, at the same time because the world is messy and things are rarely absolutely one way or another. And, and it's a great point. I mean, uh, studies give us information. Uh, in, in a sense, they give us data uh, that we can use. Uh, they give us evidence uh, to, to work with. But they don't tell us how to evaluate that evidence. They don't tell us how to arrive at a judgment. And, and that's really the problem. Uh, you know, that's where I say, you know, on the one hand, we have big data, and on the other hand, we have big data, you know, in the sense of a, of a loss of rationality uh, on both sides, uh, and uh, this sort of irrational reaction to uh, events. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, again, Trump is a great example where uh, there's no policy that we can discern, and instead he reacts to images that he sees on television, which is what we all do, because images don't give us clear evidence, or, or I'm sorry, they don't give us clear judgment of how to evaluate evidence. They just show us things, and it's the statements and the arguments that tell us what to do. Um, so ultimately, judgment depends, again, on language and on the ability to engage in a rational discussion and, and argument, argument in the sense of debate, not in the sense of just yelling at each other, which is what we often see. Uh, you know, I think you know we go back to that old assumption: uh, freedom of the of speech and freedom of the press gives us the free marketplace of ideas, and that used to mean that by exchanging uh, different points of view and different uh, bits of evidence and different opinions, we could arrive at some form of agreement and consensus about what to do. Uh, based on our agreement and the consensus about what the truth is. So uh, opinion used to be the basis of discussion. Today, opinion is the end of discussion. People say, well, that's your opinion, and this is my opinion, and, and that's it. It's the end. There's nowhere to go with that. Uh, and that's a complete reversal from the way things used to be. You know, we're going to continue this conversation. Lance, you made a really interesting point about just how truth is messy. Um, uh, this is Where We Live. I'm David DeRoche, and for Lucy Nalpathanchel, we're talking about how we get our information in the digital age and how we can't always agree on the facts, truth, and reality. Uh, joining me is Lance Strait. He's a professor of communication at Fordham. Uh, do you worry about the abundance of information, verified or not, right at our fingertips? Are we in an age of promise or danger? Are people living in completely separate realities? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email us at wherewelive at wnpr.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm David DeRoche, in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about how we get our information in the digital age and how we can't always agree on facts, truth, and reality. 
on a phone today is uh, Dan Rockmore. He's a professor of mathematics and computer science at Dartmouth College, and he's author of a Huffington Post op-ed entitled A Crisis for Critical Thinking. He's also editor and contributor of What Are the Arts and Sciences? A Guide for the Curious. Before we get to Dan, I'd like to tell us your thoughts. Are we living in a world where our realities are so different that democracy itself is threatened? Join the conversation at 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wnpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Also joining us uh, from uh, New Jersey is Lance Strait. He's a media studies uh, professor at Fordham University. Uh, Dan, welcome to where we live. Hi, Lance. Uh, hi, David. Sorry. Hey. <laughs> no worries. No, thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, before we get to uh, Dan, I wanted to get to Jesse, who is calling in right now. Um, Jesse has to leave, so I wanted to get his comment. Uh, go ahead, Jesse. You're on Where We Live. Hi, thank you very much for having me on. I'm heavily involved with fisheries, especially through New England Fishery Management Council, and uh, I'm in the Recreational Advisory Panel. And oftentimes we we have to vote on weird data and uh even there's a program on last night about our cod situation where fishermen have way different numbers than some of our biologists, like from the Northeast Science Center. Um, we're currently working on ways to get an app actually done so recreational angling can be better tracked. But the big thing is getting data vetted. Um, if it's vetted by a more regional group, it still has to be vetted by NOAA, and then so on and so forth. And that's really, really hard to do to prove that there's no data bias. And that's something that we're running into now, and it's something that we're constantly tackling. And the big thing at every single meeting is data collection. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, how can we get to something? Because, I mean, obviously, it's in our best interest to uh, be good stewards of the populations of our fish. But also, we're talking about keeping a culture alive, saving jobs, and uh, a whole industry here in New England. Jesse, thank you so much for your call. Um, Lance, could you tackle that? What can, uh, what, how do, what do, you, what, what advice would you have for people who are struggling to vet this type of data? Well, um, in a long tradition in science, is that when there's conflicting data, you do more testing, uh, and you compare, and and you know you look for the preponderance of of data. Uh, so I think you know that that's you know the the beginning of it. But when you have you know uh, 99 studies that show things are one way and one or two studies that uh, say no, uh, you know, you have to question those one or two studies, you know, and, and, uh, and that in requires also, uh, you know, educated uh, evaluation of it. But then you have that data, and, and then the question is, uh, what is the political judgment to be taken fr from that data? And, <clears throat> you know, we have to... Uh, you know, I mean that—that's always the difficult, the difficult part uh, uh, to consider. But I mean, my God, we have to not deny what the data, what the what the evidence shows us. We have to start with that as the basis, and then apply some rational thought and some moral evalu evaluation as well. Uh, you know, that's something that we also lose uh, in, in all this disparity and different viewpoints. Is is a commonly sell, uh, held set of ethical, moral principles uh, to make our decisions from. I want to turn now to Dan Rockmore. He's a mathematician at Dartmouth College. Dan, you wrote your op-ed in the Huffington Post. It was called A Crisis for Critical Thinking. 
do you think we are at a moment when there is a critical thinking crisis? Because it seems like that's just how people are. How we've always been that way. That most of us just aren't inclined to to critically examine a problem and explore the facts and seek supporting evidence. Is is it human nature to not think critically? What are your thoughts on that? Um, well, if I so maybe I'll try to contextualize it with respect to the to to that to the question from the listener. Um, I, I mean. So data comes at you, and just because it's quote-unquote data and it has some scientific imprimatur uh, on it, it doesn't actually mean um, it's been gathered uh, in, a, in an appropriate way, or even when the data is presented to you that you've dug deeply enough to understand how the data was gathered, which is what you need in order to evaluate it. So the kind of 30,000-foot uh, take on it is that um, you do need to think and reflect on anything, on any opinion, on any collection of numbers that are presented to you. And uh, to the extent that um, we've managed to make that a standard thing for people to do, to reflect on information uh, as, it's, uh, as it's received, um, I think we are uh, <laughs> at a difficult place in history. That, that, that doesn't seem to be what we do. And I don't know that the environments in which uh, many of us are working foster that that kind of reflection. And that that's an interesting point because you know we're, there are a lot of distractions, and it seems like we're in a time in history when there are so many things that that um, are vying for our attention. So, what, what what do you think people can do to or or to address this? Like, how can people? combat sort of the 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 uh, the distractions that um, are are really uh, pervasive in society and really and be inspired to to take the time to try to critically examine and explore the things that we're we're reading online or exposed to on in the media um well i mean look the 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 truth is that we're we live in a very fast-paced world now people are working uh more than ever uh in fact just to just to get by, and there isn't a lot of time uh, for reflection. Um, you know, I mean, all jobs seem to now have a, have a kind of 24/7 nature to them. So many people have to carry devices to be on call all the time. So it's not it's not really something that's fostered. And to be honest, it's a kind of privileged position to say that you should sit down quietly for an hour every day um, and read uh, or something like that. So. Uh, I think people would probably a lot of people would like to do that, and um, I generally come back to how we're uh, educating our kids. Uh, it's not that the adults are a lost generation, but we can always try to do better with respect to the generations that we're that we're bringing up. So I I do think in the schools we can do things uh, to have children reflect more. Um, I do think there's a kind of pernicious. Um, assault uh, of digital technologies uh, at the at the younger ages um, to the extent that we could uh, mitigate that a bit I think would go away I mean would go up would go a long way um, but you know generally I mean it 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 seems difficult but generally if we could get to a place where people would take a moment before reacting um, which uh, that would that would probably serve us in democracy uh, 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 quite a bit. <laughs> so, um, Dan, just so people are clear, maybe you could just lay out some definitions of critical thinking. I mean, think, I think you've kind of touched on it with the mention of reflection, taking the time to, to reflect before you react. But is there is there more to critical thinking than just that? Can you maybe just lay it out for us? How would you describe critical thinking? 
Um, well, uh, so critical doesn't always mean so critical doesn't mean criticizing. <laughs> and um, so critical thinking is this reflection uh, on the on the information that's that's come your way, trying to consider it from multiple points of view, trying to think carefully um, about if it's words that, that you're that you're considering, uh, who's saying them, um, where they're being said, what the context is in which they're being said, um, and maybe what the goal of having uh, of having those words brought to you um, uh, is. Uh, if it's visual information, you know how the how the image is set up. Again, what the context is. It, how is it being presented to you? Are you seeing it in a museum, in a storefront, on a television, on a handheld device? Because I can promise you that the people who are sending you those images or sending you those words have thought have often thought very carefully about how those words, images, media generally are being directed at you in order to tweak. Um, certain emotional buttons in you. So in some sense, it's giving the same serious thought to the media um, that you're receiving as the, as the folks uh, who provided it for you um, are doing. Mm. That's an interesting point. Uh, this is where we live. I'm David DeRoche. I'm in for Lucy Nalpothanchel. Today we're talking about how we consume information in the digital age. I'm talking with Dan Rockmore. He's a math professor at Dartmouth College. And also joining me is Lance Strait. He's a professor uh, in media studies at Fordham. Uh, tell us what you think. Has the Internet and social media shaped your perception of reality? If so, for the better or for the worse? I want to take a call now. Greg is calling us from on the road. Um, Greg, go ahead. You're on Where We Live. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. What's your question or comment? I'm interested in um, fact versus truth. Uh, as I work in the medical profession, and I often see patients strictly looking, say, if they're looking at blood work, for instance, as you're discussing with them, they're looking for a specific number. And I'm often wondering about context versus uh, when somebody's trying to understand something. To me, if the uh, fact is simply, okay, you're looking for a specific value, there's a certain set of parameters that are applied to the value. But if you're looking how to integrate that knowledge into a whole picture, there's a much deeper meeting and there's a piece of flexibility with it. So my question is, when presented with this, one, uh, it's a deeper question of how to, uh, how to, how to change person's uh, uh, thinking, but the other piece is, how much does context play a role in uh, somebody's understanding seeking uh, uh, truth versus fact? It's a great question, Greg. I mean, I think uh, the callers uh, and my guests would agree that context plays a huge role. But um, Dan, I'm wondering if you could expand on that. What do you think about just his, his uh, the question the question there about context and in, in just overall the deeper meaning of these things? Um, well, when it comes to medical data, <laughs> that's a that's a that's a very uh, well it's a complicated question. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure uh, that uh, that that Greg, uh, if he's providing this information for a patient or someone else, I mean is fully aware that numbers come in a distribution. A patient receives a test value, and that's somewhere in a whole collection of test values, and then that test value is over a very large population, and where that particular patient sits in the population may actually, I mean, does mean a lot with respect to what that number means to him or her. So, uh, 
you know, so there are multiple contexts here. There's the context of the of the number in a broad population. There's the context of the number in the small population that includes the genetic and and environmental uh, context of uh, of this patient. And then there's even the context of receiving this information in a doctor's office. You know how how uh, nervous uh, that might that might make the patient. So I mean, it does. I think it does shine a bright light on. Again, understanding, so first of all, realizing that there's something to understand about where your information comes from. It's not just a number. It comes with all this data baggage, if you like, um, and also that the person receiving it um, comes with a particular context. And then the question of truth is the question of, if in this case, is the question of, well, how is this, how is this patient, how is the doctor going to act uh, given, given that given that information. So the kind of actionable um, uh, underlying uh, information in the, in the kind of superficial piece of information. Yeah, and it does seem like the trend these days is to rely on numbers, and people tend to, tend to think of numbers as this absolute truth. But to your point, if they're taken out of context, they can be meant uh, made to mean anything. Lance, could you jump in here? What are your thoughts on uh, this issue of, of context um, and its role in, in understanding what's true and, and what's real? I, I think it's uh, really the key term, and I'm so glad uh, that it's been introduced because without context, we have no way of evaluating anything. And, and the part of the problem with numbers is that they don't really have a context in and of themselves, and it's up to us to provide that context. And then what we see is that uh, the more that we uh, add our, our technologies of communication, the, the more that we take things out of context so that when we're, we're having a conversation in, in the same place at the same time, we have a very clear and, and obvious context. When you take those words and write them down, they're taken out of context. And in fact, that Plato has Socrates complaining about that uh, in, in, in his treatise, The Phaedrus. I mean, so this goes back to antiquity, but how much more so in television and the internet and social media? Uh, one of the key terms that, uh, or phrases that, that comes up now is context collapse, that uh, all these electronic media completely eradicate all these our different contexts and, and merge them together in a way that makes it really uh, very difficult to make sense out of things. And, and to get back to the, uh, I mean, I think the point about reflection is so key as well. Um, and you look at what's happening, we get, uh, you know, the problem is information. We have too much information. It comes by, at us too quickly. Uh, it turns over too, too quickly. Um, and, and with all that information, everything becomes so specialized so that you can only really understand uh, a tiny bit of, of what's coming down, down the pike. Uh, and, and, and we have to rely on experts to tell us what to think because we really can't evaluate. Nobody really knows what the economy, uh, you know, what's best for the economy, not even the economists, if they were honest about it. Nobody knows whether bombing Syria or dropping that bomb on Afghanistan was a good thing to do or whether the Iran deal with Obama was was the right thing to do or not. It, it's it's simply just, just all these unknowns. Um, and, and so we're left with the sense of helplessness uh, uh, and, uh, and, and, and yes, no, no time for reflection uh, in, in all of this deluge uh, because ultimately information is not knowledge. 
Uh, it, mm. Knowledge requires context, and knowledge is not wisdom. And that's, that, revo- that requires a human context. Without that, we're lost. You know, you make a really good point. I, I, I imagine that we almost live in an, in an uh, almost a, a knowledge fallacy where we feel like because there's so much information, we can know whatever we want. And so then that makes us, uh, it, it's easier for us to create opinions when we don't have all the facts because we feel like there's so much information out there. Um, I want to switch gears and go to a caller. Robert is calling from New Haven. Robert, go ahead. You're on Where We Live. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for your call. What's your comment or question? So uh, I come from a background of math and physics, and I produce a video series in which I teach um, athletes how to uh, best use body mechanics and physics in general in order to um, achieve basically bigger jumps and uh, move faster through their environment. Um, it's it's a parkour series, um, and in that... Uh, I was very surprised to find out that though the majority um, of athletes take the information and really uh, work with it and like it, I, actually, I still get a lot who will take that information and just immediately turn around and argue that, no, you can't tell me what will work for me. Um, your physics doesn't work in my case. I've had, uh, I've had uh, athletes who will stand there for two hours with me and try to prove wrong a physics equation, which is just proven physics, and never succeed and <laughs> ignore my um, my advice. So I deal on a very regular basis with people who just refuse to listen to science almost as a principle. Mm. Um, and it it's probably one of the things that frustrates me most about my job. So... Um, I can imagine. Yeah, it's something I experience a lot. Robert, thank you so much for your point. Uh, Dan, as a mathematician, um, is this something you think you could weigh in on? Uh, any, any advice for Robert and how he could uh, either get people interested in appreciating what science brings to the table? Um, I, I guess the, the, the broader point is the way in which people receive something that they've been told up front is science or that they, you know, which, which can be numbers um, or, you know, a physics equation or being told is physics. Uh, for some people, that opens a door, and for some people, it shuts it and puts a lock on it. Um, and uh, you know, I, I and but I think these days, when people are receiving data, there's or receiving this kind of information, they'll either surrender to it, even if they don't understand it, because they figure, well, it comes with a scientific label, so it must be true, um, or they'll fight it because they don't understand it. So mm. generally, I mean, generally when you're trying to bring science to someone who isn't a priori receptive to it, you have to, you have to lead them in slowly and you have to lead them in, in a friendly way. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that, I'm sure that Robert, uh, tries to do this and uh, I can tell you from the other side of the lectern <laughs> that you get a whole spectrum of, 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 of modes of reception to these things so it's patience and persistence and a smile <laughs> mm, yeah, I can, <laughs> can imagine. get you 
can get you pretty far. Yeah, that could be said for a lot of things in life. Uh, yeah. We do have to go to a break in a minute, but before we go, I wanted to play a clip from uh, CBS Evening News anchor Scott Pelley, uh, who got the Walter Cronkite Award last year at Arizona State University, and here's what he had to say. Think of this. Is terrorism the greatest threat to our country? Or a recession? I suggest to you today that the quickest, most direct way to ruin a democracy is to poison the information. Lance, we do have to go to break, but your uh, quick thoughts and your reaction to uh, what Pelley was saying? Well, uh, I, I I'm completely in agreement with it. Uh, democracy is based on access to information. The old way of thinking was that you people can't govern yourselves. It's like the, the king in, in the Hamilton musical. Uh, you know, you can't govern yourselves because you don't know enough to govern yourselves. And it was only after the invention of the printing press uh, making information, making knowledge easily accessible to large numbers of people that we could turn around and say, we do know enough. We can make decisions. Mm. Dan, what are your thoughts, quickly? Uh, absolutely. In a democracy, people are voting. They're voting on their feelings, on what they think they what they think is true. And if they're being fed falsehoods, then, they're be, then they'll be voting on things that aren't true. Lance Strait is professor of communication and media studies at Fordham. Dan is a Dan Rockmore is a math professor at Dartmouth. Both will stick around. When we come back. We'll talk with a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist about his effort to make news literacy a common part of the curriculum for high school. This is Where We Live. I'm David DeRoche, in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up on Monday, 2017 marks 50 years since a U.S. Supreme Court decision put an end to laws banning interracial marriage. On the next Where We Live, we revisit our conversation about the civil rights case, Loving versus Virginia. Have, perception, have society's perceptions really changed? We ask interracial couples living in Connecticut that question and more. We know many of you tune in to Where We Live on your car radio or stream us live at WNPR.org. But you can't listen live mornings at 9 or evenings at 7. You can subscribe to Where We Live on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any podcast app. Today we're talking about how we consume information in the digital age. I've been talking with Dan Rockmore. He's a math professor at Dartmouth. And Lance Strait, he's a media studies professor at Fordham. We want to focus on now uh, media literacy, news literacy in the digital age. And what is news literacy? Why is it important and how can we teach it? Joining us now to talk about this is Alan Miller. He's president and CEO of the News Literacy Project, and he also uh, earned a Pulitzer Prize while working as a journalist with the L.A. Times. Alan, welcome to Where We Live. Good morning, David. It's a pleasure to join you. Well, uh, thank you so much for being here. Now, as a journalist, as, a, as an award-winning journalist and longtime reporter for the L.A. Times, uh, just tell us a little bit about uh, what news literacy is and, and what prompted you to start the News Literacy Project. Sure. We, we define news literacy as the critical thinking skill and how to know what to believe in a digital age, how to determine what is verified and credible information versus raw information, opinion, advertising, and misinformation as both a consumer and a creator. 
Uh, we really feel this is a survival skill in information age that, that we are teaching literacy for the 21st century. What prompted me to start it was back in 2006 when I was doing investigative reporting in the Washington Bureau of the Los Angeles Times. I was invited to my daughter's middle school to talk about what I did as a journalist and why it mattered. And when I left, well, I thought this is a long way from investigative reporting. If a lot of journalists brought their expertise and experience to bear, it could be extremely meaningful. And I had two concerns at the time. One was what the wrenching transition that was happening in the news business and whether there would continue to be an appreciation and a demand for the kind of quality journalism to which I had dedicated my career. And also how my own 12-year-old daughter was accessing and evaluating this tsunami of information of such varying credibility, accountability, and transparency. Mm. So, I mean, you, you touched on why you think this is important, but uh, for journalists also, you know, uh, do you feel like most people don't even trust journalists? Do you feel like that you have to prove your worth? Is that the case with students? Well, I would take that sort of two sides of that coin. For one, one, I think I think everybody needs to think like a journalist in an information age because everybody is their own editor and everybody can be their own publisher. So how do people do this in a way that is credible and responsible and empowers their voices? Obviously, there is an enormous problem now with the lack of trust in, uh, in journalism. Um, and there's a, a whole series of reasons we could get into why that is. But I think it's very important that people understand that all information is not created equal. Mm. And that journalism, while imperfect by its very nature, and we, we underscore that for a lot of reasons, um, still has certain standards that it's, it aspires to. And these are the aspirational standards that we teach young people to use in assessing any information that they encounter. And there's a certain level of accountability and transparency that you have with journalism versus a lot of other information that is out there. And as we now know, a tremendous amount of misinformation and even disinformation driven by profit motive and ideological reasons where um, people simply make things up, what has been called fake news, what I, I like to think of hoaxes, viral rumors, and conspiracy theories. So while journalism may be imperfect, I think that, uh, again, it's an aspiration to inform. There's a certain level of standards and accountability, and I think people have to be mindful of that when um, choosing their sources of news and information and asking themselves what it is that they are looking at, consuming, believing, sharing, and acting on. I'm glad you sort of clarified the, your fake news, because I do feel like that's more of a political hammer than anything else these days. Because I mean, obviously, fabrications have been around for a long time. There was, you know, Jason Blair at the New York Times, Stephen Glass, Janet Cook, even Brian Williams with the, you know, gunshots taking gunfire. So you know, fabrications have been a part of of mainstream media. It's not just alternative media. Before we continue this conversation, I do want to turn to a caller. Um, Stephen is calling from New Britain. Go ahead, Stephen. You're on where we live. How you doing? Um, well, I know you guys have been talking a lot about uh, fake news and, and, and things like that and misinformation and how people accept that misinformation or just true information, even with the science, how people accept um, scientific fact versus, you know, other things. But I, I, I feel like that subconsciously people um, will gravitate towards whatever news will quell their fear or justify their fear. You know, in, in an example of something like creationism where you have science involved or you have a science that's, you know, telling you about uh, evolution and, and, uh, and, and dinosaur bones and things of that nature, where people, whether or not they believe it's true or not, will gravitate towards 
fake news or misinformation because deep down subconsciously it justifies what they believe in or it may quell a fear. And what kind of scares me is that people in that situation will, um, will kind of sway in the direction um, of that, like like in the elections, you know, that may have swayed votes in, in, in certain respects because people felt more comfortable with the misinformation. Um, even though maybe deep down they knew it was misinformation, it made them feel a little more comfortable um, in, in hearing that. Mm. Stephen, thank you so much for your point. I think um, this confirmation bias that definitely um, a a lot of us kind of deal with, we seek out things that to reaffirm our biases, is definitely something that that plagues us. But then it's also the point of why, what incentive would somebody have to seek out information that um, that they disagree with? Um, uh, uh, Alan, do you take this one? Sure. Stephen's absolutely right. He raises an extremely important point. You know, when people look for, see the, the news through prisms of red and blue, they tend to see the world in terms of black and white. And I think increasingly uh, there's the opportunity now for people to find, um, only go to those sources that they know they're going to agree with and to reinforce their pre-existing beliefs. And that is also reinforced by the algorithms, so that based on what they're looking at, that's what they're going to be given, whether they're aware of that or not. And I think it makes people very prone to being manipulated and misled. And, you know, one of the things that we teach is, first of all, to be aware of your own confirmation bias um, and, um, and to look for wider sources of news and information to challenge your pre-existing belief. Um, but this is, a, this is a big and growing problem that has both, um, you know, added to the hyperpartisanship and I think made it very difficult for us as a country and communities to agree on even a set of facts before we debate what may be the solutions to existing problems. And I think that the, really the key to this is, is education and, and self-awareness um, for consumers. And certainly this has been a problem for a long time, and I think you can reasonably say that in life, people tend to hang out with people that they uh, agree with. So we don't necessarily seek out um, people to hang out with that we disagree with. Um, I mean, some of us probably do, but most people probably don't. Uh, I got another caller, Kevin from Glastonbury, uh, is calling. Kevin, go ahead. You're on Where We Live. Hey, good morning. Good morning. What's your call comment or question? Um, well, I have to comment on something I heard on WNPR a couple of weeks ago. Some guy called in, said he got his news from YouTube, mm. and I was dumbfounded that somebody could think that YouTube was a source of news. Mm. Dan, uh, Alan, what do you think about that, YouTube as a source of news? Um, well, I, <clears throat> I mean, people, people get their news from all kinds of sites. They can set up an entire news feed for themselves. Uh, you, can't, um, <clears throat> you can't force people to go to other places. Uh, I have often thought that, given that everybody's on a digital platform these days, that if our, that if the big digital providers were were concerned about this, they could actually attach a widget where, based on search histories and things like that, they could send you the feeds of the anti you. Mm. I mean, they know that they sort of know what the anti you is in terms of your habits, and uh, they could present the opportunity uh, for people to seek out alternative um, positions instead of continually amplifying the position that they hold in order to figure out better ways to sell them stuff. So, uh, you know, people, I mean, look, it's democracy. Uh, it's not Syria. There's not one channel. And, uh, and we should be thankful 
for that. On the other hand, I do think we could do a better job of being uh, um, guardians of democracy by giving people broader uh, pieces of information, uh, true or false, but with some annotation to give a sense of what your neighbors are thinking. Mm. Alan, just give us a sense. We only have a few minutes left in the show, but I want to get a sense of uh, how you teach news literacy. Uh, what does your curriculum look like? And, and, and can par- is this something that parents can probably do for their, for their children? So we've, we started with uh, classroom and after-school programs, which we're still running in, in, uh, in New York and, um, and, and D.C. and Chicago. But we now have a virtual classroom, uh, check out the Checkology virtual classroom, uh, which people can access. It's an online platform. Um, and we um, basically, you know, it's 12 lessons um, that, among other things, teach students how to see, understand the difference between news, um, uh, inform- opinion, advertising, and the kind of raw information that people get on YouTube. Um, gives them an appreciation of the First Amendment, the watchdog role of the press in a democracy. We have lessons on bias, on the role of algorithms. And really, it's, it's giving students the tools to inculcate the habit of mind to, to be skeptical and inform consumers and ultimately informed and engaged citizens in a democracy. And it's being used now in all 50 states. We've got over 5,700 educators who teach over 800,000 students in every state in the country, um, including a large number in Connecticut, I might add, and 46 countries around the world who are registered to use the platform since we launched it in May. Mm. So there's a great demand. There's a tremendous interest, uh, which is encouraging, mm. uh, because um, clearly this is something that's needed very much by, by the next generation, I think, is, as well as all citizens. Certainly. Uh, I want to get to uh, Lance and Dan. We only have a, a few minutes, but Lance, in 30 seconds, just tell us your thoughts on the role of journalists uh, play in the world we're living in today to analyze or just give facts. Well, I I think we first we have to understand that you know when we're when we're talking about for the First Amendment and freedom of the press, there was no journalism as we understand it at that time, and and the uh, you know while I'm and I I want to say I'm all for this this effort for news literacy, uh, but we also need to understand that that journalism as a professional activity uh, is fairly recent. I mean it it, it coalesces during the late nineteenth century. Uh, and at that time, when we have newspapers, there are multiple. It's hard to imagine today that there were once multiple newspapers in every town and every city. Uh, you know that New York ha- had dozens of newspapers, and and, and Lance, I'm sorry, we, we're running out of time. Sorry, I have to oh. uh, thank our, uh, our 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 producers, uh, Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Technical producers, Kyone Wolf. Uh, WMPR's executive producer is Katie Tularski. Thank you to our guests, Lance Strait, Dan Rockmore, and Alan Miller. This is where we live.